everybody, Jonathan here coming to you from my iPhone, so pardon the audio quality, and it's bright and early at some crazy hour because I'm watching World Championships this weekend, and you should be too. Uh, the good news is you can watch it after the fact. It'll be on Red Bull TV, and this podcast is a quickie, and it's actually an interview with Keegan Swenson, who races for Pivot, uh, Maxis usually, but he's racing for the USA, and he's over there right now. So uh, tons of athletes from obviously all different countries. It's a really cool race to check out, and even for you downhill people, you should check out the XC race. It's a ton of fun to watch. This interview with Keegan is a little bit behind the logistics of world championships. So uh, yeah, I, I think a, a lot of things are learned in this one. And then we learn some information about the course as well. So tune in, enjoy and enjoy world championships and cheer for those from your country. Thanks everybody. Chat soon. How's everything going over there in Switzerland? Oh, it's going well. Just uh, <laughs> finished watching the U twenty three men's race, which was quite exciting. Yeah. Do we want to? Should we spoil that for people? I don't really know. I mean, none of us in the U.S. have seen it because of geo blocking. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, and it's not going to be. I don't even think people will find it on Red Bull or anything. So right, right. But so anyway. how did how did Blevins do? He was our he was our guy, right? Yeah, uh, Christopher Blevins was second, and he him and um, Alan Hathaway, the South African, were together most of the race. Um, and then just like half, maybe, see, maybe a third of the way into the last lap, looks like Alan just like kind of twisted the throttle a little bit on the grass on the backside, and Chris just couldn't couldn't quite hang. Um, yeah. And he got like a five second gap, and that was enough to Ooh. kind of open it up. But I mean, regardless, that's an amazing result. So uh, second at World super Champs. Fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. That cool. is that is awesome, man. Way to go, so, Blevins. That's cool. Yeah. If if people don't know about Chris Blevins too, they should. He has more, way more bike skill than Peter Sagan, and people just lose their mind on Peter Sagan's bike skill. So yeah, he's an animal. And the dude is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing on a bike. So, uh, so I I wanted to take like a little bit of time here just to kind of walk people through World Championships in general. Like obviously mm -hmm. we know it's a huge race, but to kind of look into what it takes to get to worlds, um, how you get to worlds and like how, you know, what, what life is like over there. And then we'll talk a little bit about your race and how you're going to, you know, prepare and execute for that. So, uh, firstly, how does one get selected for the world champs squad to represent a country? So basically how it works, I'm sure all countries are different. Um, but basically how it works in the U S is there's different levels of, funding and um different ways to qualify so there's like automatic qualifiers which are um pretty sure it's top 10 elite world cup which is pretty hard result to get um as yeah. an automatic like fully funded spot to worlds nice um and then there's like winning nationals is an automatic but it's not fully funded like you need to cover your own flight and there's a few it's like that's basically it when you get here they cover everything um mm. then there's after that there's discretionary picks um, which is basically you submit, um, like a, in a more, more or less an application. And then they, they pick just whatever athletes, whoever, whoever you know, sends that in, however, out of however many they'll pick a few. So, so when you say they, do you mean the UCI or do you mean USAC? Uh, USA or? cycling. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Got so it. there's, um, there's a panel, I think maybe it's, it goes to the board or something and there's maybe five people who are kind of involved or so. I'm not hundred percent mm -hmm. sure who in the end has a final say. Um, mm -hmm. But, okay. Yeah. Cool. And I, so, was a, I was a discretionary pick. Nice. Well, so, congrats to you. I did the automatics. I submitted, I submitted my uh, application, and 
yeah, that's how I made it here. Sweet. Uh, so this is, so. is this your second world selection, but first time going to worlds? Is that correct? This is, um, my, let's see, well, this be, I've gone to every Worlds since, uh, 2011, but I was a junior, then you 23 and this would be my first elite worlds last year. I was selected, but just opted not to go stay home. Right. Um, yeah. A detail that you mentioned there was that like, you know, they'll pay for, or you have to pay for your own flights in some cases, but they'll cover yeah. other costs once you're there. Meaning your, your national sanctioning body, organizing body being us yeah. cycling. Uh, in this yep. case, how do you guys cover the other costs? I mean, is this something that like your team does, or is this something that you're covering out of your own funds, whether that be through just individual funds or like fundraising, how do those other costs get covered? Um, yeah, so it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, some athletes it's paid for out of their own pocket, some their team pays for it. Um, so it really depends on the individual and what they have worked out with their team, I guess. Um, so would you say that the majority of the athletes that are there for the U S or for USA are, it's not entirely paid for. I mean, that they're having to, to bring together funding from other sources, whether that be their team or individual yeah, funds. Definitely the majority. Yeah, I'd say most of them are having to find some one way or another to pay for it because there's only there's only a few like automatic automatically selected athletes that are getting full full funding from USA Cycling. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like, you know, if you get selected for Worlds that it would be, you know, something that USA Cycling would be interested in like covering, but I guess what do they cover there? Do they provide like housing for the athletes or uh yeah, like so nutrition or what do they provide? Yeah, I mean, once you're here, um like so there's there's also like a small team fee that everyone has like not like if you're not an automatic then you have to pay the team fee as well, but that covers lodging, mechanics, food, swan ears, massages, like everything. You don't have to lift a finger once you're here. So Nice. Like, okay. I think there's three swan ears, there's three or four mechanics. Um yeah, everything's taken care of. So you mentioned that you guys have like massages and or masseuse uh, or masseurs, mm -hmm. however you want to say that. Um, and you have uh, everything else. Are, are, are people cooking your meals for you? Are they working on your bikes for you? And do you have to bring those people over from your team or is that supplied also by USA Cycling? Yeah, so the mechanics are all supplied by USA Cycling. Um, nice. One of them, his name is Michel. He's based out of Belgium. The other one's from Canada. Um, so there's... You know, kind of, and then the mechanics we work with all year with USA Cycling. So at the World Cups, I've been working with these mechanics, and um, Michelle, I've actually been working with since I was 17 years old. Wow. Okay. Um, so a lot of these guys have been around for a while, so they know you well. They know your bike, and um, yeah, so it's it's pretty awesome. Um, do you do you then, carry around like a sheet? Uh, sorry, on the bike setup thing, um, do you carry around like a sheet, or do you have memorized like your settings to give them? Um, so that like when you land, then you can say like, you know, this is exactly how I want my bike set up. Like, do you have that written down or recorded anywhere? Um, generally not. I mean, I know all my settings, just mm -hmm. my heart. Like I know the way it, I know I like how much pressure I want my front shock, my rear shock and my tire pressure. And then basically how it works is like each day you'll tell the mechanics, like if there's anything wrong with your bike, you need new brake pads, you need new chain. And then I want this much pressure in my, in my shocks. And in the morning before you go out to train or before you go race, you say, okay, let's set up tire pressure and we do that. So everything, like, I guess I'm not sure if everyone has their stuff memorized or not. I imagine right. some of the juniors <laughs> a little looser. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. 
So do you, do you have like, what about bike fit? Like, do you bring a bike over or is a bike sourced locally from some sort of pivot distribution for you? Or do you fly with your own bike? Majority of the time you fly with your own bike. Um, I've been pretty lucky this year because we, as I leave, I've left one bike over here all season. So okay. I flew over this year in May with, uh, my, my 429. Um, okay. and it just has lived here. It's lived at the USA cycling, um, like they have like a, a service course and service course in Sittard over in the Netherlands. Um, so it just lives there all nice. season. And then I'll take it home with me after this trip. And I had at home, I had another 429 identical. So, which is great because it saves a ton of stress having to travel with a bike and box it up and take it apart. Not to mention it's expensive, right? So yeah. and every time you fly, it's like $200, $250 each way to get your bike back and yeah. forth. Yeah, it's and it's just more chance of things going wrong and bikes getting lost. So we've just left, like, I left the bike over here, an extra set of wheels, some spare parts. Nice. So, so is, does the bike stay built when it gets, goes back to the Netherlands from the races? Or is yeah. this something where um, you or a mechanic has to go back up and set the saddle height, set saddle position, bar position, that no, the sort bike, of thing? Uh, it just goes in the back of the sprinter van. Um, the bars get turned sideways to fit more bike. They stack a few bikes in and all the other stuff. Um, and that's it. Oh, and that's easy. To take it apart. So all we got to do is put the front wheel back on and, you know, set, set the suspension and tires and she's good to go. So. Oh, sweet. Yeah. That's a good setup. And I saw that, I don't know if pivot or who did the stickers, but you also have like American flag overlays on all the logos and designs on your bike. Is that something that pivot sends over to you? Or is that something that USA cycling puts together? And then who actually sticks the stickers on? Yeah. So pivot actually, um, they sent me the stickers before coming over here. Nice. Um, and, uh, so we were able to kind of see the stickers and know what was going to happen. And, and then we got over here and put them all on and I, yeah, the stickers came out really cool. I'm, I'm stoked them and they're all, and it's also I'm kind of a weight wean stickers are lighter than paint. So cut yeah. those custom frames get, they get heavy. So yeah. it's cool to have, you know, the decals are cool and the matte black and looks good. Yeah, man. That's a good so. looking bike. Yeah. And then Stan um, did some custom wheels as well to match. So. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. The podium SRDs, right. Uh, is what you're running there. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, is, is there, and sorry, this is going to be a bit of a diversion, but is there a situation where for XC racing, you would run like the CB sevens over the podium SRDs, or do you always prioritize just the, the, the lightest setup for XC? Um, for cross country, I always just run the lightest, um, yeah. um which is maybe a, a, I don't know, marathon race somewhere like self-supported, like without any spare wheels and stuff, then maybe I consider the CB7s because they're not that much heavier and they're like the same bead and basically the same wheel, just a little tougher. So, right. Um, right. yeah, I mean, over, over, pretty much overall, I'd probably say I pretty much always just race the podiums. So, Cool. Um, so let's get into the course. I guess that that kind of was uh, a close, as close as we'll get to a segue <laughs> over to that. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the course itself, uh, from what I've seen, you've got a lot of rain, and thusly mud and roots and some tricky and slippery and kind of gnarly looking rock sections too, kind of thrown in in some spots. Mm -hmm. Um, so this isn't like the typical dry mountain West type of XC race that we have, uh, in the, in the mountain West. What are you doing differently with your bike setup to be set up for this sort of terrain where you've got constant roots and rocks and slick, slick stuff? Yeah. Um, I actually just have my, European bike set up a touch different from my home bike as well. Mm. Um, so I run, 
uh, more volume spacers in the rear shock. Okay. So I can run a lower lower pressure, run a little more sag, but still have the mid stroke and the bottom out resistance. Right. Because um, a lot of times you just, is that to get more? Roots. Yeah. So that would be to get more compliance over those small bumps and roots, right? Be able to keep the power yeah. down over that. So basically, yeah. these courses they have so many roots and small bumps that you still want the small bump. But then they'll have big jumps, or they'll have big drops that you still need the bottom out resistance, right? And you don't want to mm -hmm. blow through all the travel. Mm -hmm. um, and then having more mid stroke support means you're not going to bottom out your shock when you're trying to like pump through roots and like you get, it's a little more responsive once you get into the travel because mm -hmm. you run a lot of sag without enough volume reducers and you're just going to blow through it and it's just going to feel super squishy and just it's just going to make the bike dead more or less yeah yeah so Makes i just sense. i tend to run a little more volume spacers over here and run lower pressure just so you the bike's a little more responsive while still being supple over the small stuff so. Cool. Do you make any and like then, position adjustments? Are you running the bars higher or something or anything like that or no? Nope. No, handlebars are exactly the same. Cockpit's the same, same saddle, um, dropper post as well. I just leave that on all the bikes. Um, Smart. And the only thing that really changes, I guess, aside from that is tire pressure. Uh, okay. All, like today, for example, it was wet, um, but tomorrow looks like it's going to be drier. Um, so I was running 19, 19 today, front and rear. Okay. So That's pretty low. Pretty much I mean, how soft. much are you, how yeah. much are you weighing? Uh, about 140, 142. Okay. And, and then generally like at home, I'll run a little more. So that's, I guess, what tires are you running to give people an idea of the volume and the actual tire? Uh, I run the Maxxis Aspen 2.25. And I, I think that you're running the 170 TPI, the special ones that only, you know, you, you fast pro guys can get, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, well, I generally like to train on the 120s. Um, and then just keep the one seventies like ultra fresh for racing. That makes um, sense. And I generally, when I go to the one seventies, I up it about one PSI because they're more supple. So you gotta make sure you take that into account. So you don't, you know, blow the tire off and rim, hit the rim. So, yeah. And I guess the, and just to, as a refresher, people can go back and listen to an episode where we talked all about tires actually with you. Um, and Sophia, yeah. we talked all about tires, um, got nerdy on that stuff, but the higher thread count, which is, you know, threads per inch TPI makes it so that the tires way more supple and gives you a better feel. Have you noticed that that helps in like the muddy stuff when it's getting a little slippery? Oh, it's huge. Um, yeah. like lower pressure and a more supple tire is like, how you survive the roots. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just like, there's like, cause it's a big misconception that big knobs give you more traction, right? In mm -hmm. the roots and wet stuff, you just want contact. Like the more surface area you have touching that slippery root, the more traction you're going to have. And the Aspen has like, it just grabs so much. It feels like it just bites onto those roots and gives mm -hmm. you a lot of traction. So, yeah. Like I've noticed with the Aspen that a lot of the tire, like the, the tire itself, there's knobs, but all the space in between the knobs does a lot of work on the Aspen. Like, uh, it ends exactly. up making a lot of contact and giving you a ton of surface mm -hmm. area. I think that's why they feel so good, um, in terms of yeah. like traction and how they're, how predictable they are. So, and they're so versatile. Like I'll race those in the dust, like, and then I'll race them here in the mud just cause they clear mud well. And they're like, they roll fast and Mm. Pretty, it's all just about tire, just pressure. That's all I change really. So, yeah, I was interested to see that Matthew Van, or Matthew Vanderpool, at least on, on the picture of his bike was running icons. And I understand, you know, the icons have a bit taller knob. So then, you know, a lot of people mm -hmm. like think that that would be better for mud, but I would think that I, I certainly would want a tire that has a little bit more bite on the sidewall or on, I should say on the side knobs, kind of like the Aspen has in mm -hmm. those sort of conditions. So 
Yeah. But then again, he's a cyclocross racer, so he's used to cornering on, on nothing anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, I, I guess it works. And like yeah. the icon, um, yeah, it's got a bit taller knobs and it, it tends to pack up a little more if it's thick mud, whereas the Aspen mm-hmm. stays, it tends to clear out faster. You should sit him down and let him know uh, that he can be better at tire choice. I think that would, I think yeah, that go can, over well. <laughs> yeah, he should maybe he should run DHS or something. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Let him know that. That'll be great. Yeah. Um, cool. So uh, I guess talking about the course a bit, is it like a typical XCO course, or is there anything that stands out on this course? Um, in general, yes. Um, the only thing that stands out is there's one um, pavement climb that's pretty substantial bit of the course. I mean, it's not really long, but I think there's going to be a lot of selection made there. Um, mm. It's about, well, so it's at the start, finish, the start, finish, the top of the climb is about two minutes. Oh yeah. Um, and the first half it's, it's, um, first half is grass and dirt mix where there's a feed zone, et cetera. You then you go up a steep grass climb, make a hard left on the pavement. And then it's about a minute of pavement mm. until you drop into the first descent. Does the, does that, is it wide enough to allow passing throughout that whole climb? Or does yeah, it it's like a bike path, bike path okay. size. So yeah. it's fairly wide. There's a lot of passing. And then I think, honestly, the rest of the course, it's, there's a lot of short little punchy, like 10, 20, 30 second climbs. And mm-hmm. the rest of it's just like about being smooth, like keeping the flow and like conserving energy for that big climb again. So interesting. So that's kind of where the fireworks will fly then. I think so. And I think, I mean, maybe not fireworks, but more of like attrition too. Like I think guys are just slowly going to pop. Mm, yeah. Do you yeah. think, um, I guess on the descents, are the descents decisive enough? I, I assume the mud will make things decisive, but are the descents like the technicality of the descents themselves? Is that decisive enough to really make some splits with better descenders and worse descenders? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, maybe if it was a drastic difference, yes. But I think in general, like, you know, top guys are all so good in these descents. They're not very long. Um, mm. So, like, even if, let's say, Nino was you know really sending it he might only be able to pull like a couple seconds on whoever's behind him and which isn't enough to really you know open up a huge gap so i think these descents like there's a few sections where it's like flat and rudy and technical and that's where i think we're time to be made because yeah you have to work hard be smooth and nail all your lines right so that makes sense I guess looking at the weather, it looks like for you guys, like you said, it's going to be not, you know, wet and rainy. Um, the dirt might be that way, but it's, it's not exactly warm there either. Right. Like it's kind of cold. No, it's like 50 degrees right now. Um, it's, which is pretty cold, especially it's humid and wet and tomorrow looks fairly nice. Actually, it's supposed to be a high of 64 and only 10% chance of rain. So I think, which was a lot different than the forecast I originally saw like a week ago. So I'm right. excited. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in this so. scenario, what do you do for eating? Like what were you going to eat and drink every lap? I assume there's only one feed zone per lap or are there two? There's and two. Are you gonna, yeah, it's a double. You, so you go through the same one twice. Oh, rounds, okay. Basically. Cool. So will you be having people uh, give you feeds on, on you know, in, in both positions, I guess, or in the feed zone uh, two times per lap? And what will you be drinking and eating? What's the plan? Yeah. Um, so I'll probably grab bottles in both. Um, the first feed zone, I'll likely just take a big swig and chuck it because I don't want to carry that bottle back up that steep road climb. <laughs> yeah, um, good call. Every gram counts. <laughs> and I figure it's like, and honestly, the only place you can really drink on this course is the feed zone, the start finish and that pavement climb. So right. I don't want, I don't want to carry the bottles up the climb. So I might as well drink in the feed zone and then just chuck it, take mm-hmm. a big swig. Uh, now the bottles will only be like a quarter full anyway. 
Uh, okay. I'll just grab oh, a fresh one each time. That's smart. So they only they only fill it up just with enough to be able to basically replenish, but it's not excessive. Yeah. So basically, I'll make how I do it is I make like you know a couple full bottles of drink mix, and I just distribute it in each bottle. Huh. Um, that way, you I get gar- the right ratio. I guarantee you, so many people listening to this just have not really thought of doing that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. No, I haven't. I mean, that's smart. When I first started doing it, I mean, for cross country races, that's what I always do. There's no reason to carry around a full bottle when you get a fresh half one each lap and yeah. not worry about carrying around all that weight. And it's especially on these in Europe when it's muddy, your bottle gets covered in mud, and you don't necessarily want to put your mouth back on that thing. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are, do you think that you'll be drinking less because of the? I mean, it's arguable that it's not a good idea to drink less, even though it's cooler. But are you planning on drinking less because it'll be cooler? I mean, I think it'll just naturally happen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I know it's like I'm not going to hydrate quite as much before the race. Just, you know, you're not carrying as much water weight and whatever else. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, probably just don't drink as much. As, you, know, you can only drink when you're thirsty to a certain extent. I mean, obviously, you got to stay hydrated, whether it's hot or not. But. You just won't eat as much. So. Especially for these short races, right? Like it's not as big of a concern. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, nutrition is important for these short races, but it's still, it's not quite as important as the long ones, as long as you're getting something, getting some fluid. And then I'll have some goose uh, taped to the bottles and have some in my pocket as well. And that's, so. that's how, so is that the, the energy you'll be taking in on the ride is going to be coming from goose then? Yeah. Yeah. I'll have four or five of them. Nice. Okay. Four or five. And that's, uh, this is what probably around a 90 minute race about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, how many laps will you guys do in 90 minutes? Do you know? We're doing eight, eight laps. Okay, cool. I think it's going to be on the long side because I'm assuming we'll do about 12 minute laps. Okay. Um, yeah. And that makes about 96 minutes. So got it. Okay. Um, sweet man. Uh, so what do you, and then the, I guess the, the final question, what are you going to be eating the, I guess tonight, the night before, and then the morning of the race? Uh, the night before, uh, I like to just eat a lot of carbs, um, generally rice or pasta, something fairly simple. Um, and some chicken or some sort of meat. Just not, not a ton of, not a ton of meat, just enough, a little protein and, whatnot um and then have breakfast probably like probably do some granola uh oatmeal whatnot and we don't race till 2 30 so okay. then i'll have like um so that's why i'm saying like a normal like kind of a regular breakfast you know um mm-hmm. and then the pre-race meal is just rice with maybe a little bit of banana and that's it sweet like, pretty simple yeah Keep Just it carbs. simple. And then what time <laughs> yeah. do you race local time there to Switzerland? What time are you racing? Uh, pretty sure 2.30. Okay. And so you'll probably... Check whether it's 2.15 or 2.30, but... <laughs> you'll be timing, I assume, like your your last meal to be just a couple hours before, three hours before, something like that? Yeah, like about uh, 2.45 to three hours, roughly. I start eating about three hours before, and then also I'm finished. Yeah. Okay. Just after that, so... Nice. Well, uh, you'll be wearing the red, I, the stripes, the vertical stripes for USA and also's kit, yep. um, yes, with sir. black shorts, you'll be on a black pivot with an orange fork and the USA stickers, uh, number 58, number 58. And will you have your turquoise cask on? Uh, huh. Yep. okay, cool. Um, so that way when people are watching this on Red Bull TV, uh, they can, they can search for you. Do you know your call up position roughly how far back you'll be? Uh, I think I'm call it number 60, 60. Nice. Not too bad then. Good. 
So cool. Not yeah, as not bad terrible. as previous races. So <laughs> it could be worse. I could be, I mean, I think there's a, over a hundred guys starting. So, right. You know, could be way worse, but definitely going to be some chaos at first lap trying to get some story. <laughs> so I'm sure, man. <laughs> well, good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Elbows out. Good luck and, uh, keep it pinned, man. We'll, uh, we'll be cheering for you on Red Bull TV. Yeah. Thank you. Sure thing. All right. See you, man. See you. Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.